0: Welcome to Ex Libris On Air, and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is A River Too Far, and joining me from Florida is author Lee Flandreau. Thank you, sir, for joining me today
1: thank you for having
0: me. this is an interesting story i began re well i say it's an interesting story the concept is certainly interesting i began to read it and uh, automatically assumed it must be a fictional work but in visiting with you earlier i understand this is actually an account of a trip or of uh, something that you personally experienced and it, it in- encompasses uh, the the country of uh, is it peru is that correct
1: that's right. Yeah. Shit. And we wandered into uh, Bolivia a little later. By my snake. <laughs>
0: I bet you digress. Yes. And now this is 180 some pages. Why was this story of interest do you think to uh, to the reader and and you you note that many people said you need to tell your story.
1: Well, I it's a trip I took uh, about 28 years ago and I kept a lot of notes. It was unusual. It's uh we thought we had a trip well planned and it didn't turn out to be that. Well, but um, I took a lot of notes, as I did on many of the interesting trips I took, and I uh, wrote it up when I got back. I had photographs, Mm. and recently, even though this was 28 years ago, recently a friend found the notes, had them bound and sent to my children, and they said, Dad... It's a great story of uh, that trip, uh, but we can't read your handwriting because you type <laughs> it up for us. And so then someone else said, why don't you write it? You have the pictures and the and, uh, experience, and you've written a book already. I wrote a, a, a history of the, the local area down here that went over pretty well. So I did, and I tried to make it humorous, which it was, um, because we had a happy ending, <laughs> but it but uh, uh, they thought it was an interesting story, and so we just had it published.
0: Well, that's fabulous. Uh, now, the uh, fact that it had a happy ending doesn't mean that it was all smooth sailing. You you do talk about a, a river trip, and uh, you also uh, have included a lot of details, which most people would have forgotten. Was this trip a um, a pleasure trip to begin with or an adventure trip? How would you describe it?
1: Well, it was a pleasure trip. Um, I had always been fascinated by the Amazon rainforest, it's gigantic. You know, it's yes. um, it's as large as the entire United States—about three million square miles—and it's all jungle. It's all rainforest. The all the animals are different. The trees are different. Uh, they don't. The animals don't match anything in Africa, Asia, or North America. Um, and and it's always fascinated me, and it's at least probably the least uh, explored area in the world. Wow. In fact, recently they just found another tribe by using a drone, a tribe of people down just north of Peru there that they never knew existed. So Incredible. It is quite an interesting place. We didn't run into any headhunters, but uh, <laughs> we. the problem that we had was we – I found another friend who was also fascinated with this area, so we got together and said, "Let's let's research trips that we could take." And mine were kind of uh, touristy, and he found a, but he found on the west coast uh, a woman who spoke Spanish and was a naturalist, and said she lived down there and she had all the details, and she was lived in a place in the summer, for many summers, and studied a place called Puerto Maldonado.
2: Hmm. And
1: it's in the eastern part of, um, it's near the Bolivian border in Peru, on the other side of the Andes, in the rainforest. Well, it, it was she was a female. She lived there alone. She knew people down there. That sounded safe enough. Mm-hmm. Then we, uh, she had all the details. She uh, was going to be the guide. And take us with uh, two of the locals in a cruise boat. Everything sounded wonderful. She even designed the, showed us where the uh, things were in the boat, where we our observation area was, and all. <laughs> right. yeah, and we had so many things we had to do in preparation. We had all the provisions that we should take, and what we'd see. Um, well, it was quite different. She backed out of the trip, but said you should go anywhere. These two men don't speak English, but they're easy to communicate with. Uh-huh.
0: Well, oh, they were not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they didn't speak a word of English. And they didn't even speak good Spanish. But we were there, and then we found out the town not didn't have electricity. It didn't have. They had one telephone line, I think. I didn't even know that towns like this existed. The only thing they had was an airport. Wow. You couldn't travel by water, you couldn't go by rail, and there was no road connecting it to any other city anywhere in the in Peru or Brazil. Incredible. I didn't know places like that existed. So, well, I had a little small anxiety attack, but got over it, <laughs> decided, uh, my partner said, let's go. So we went down the Madre de Dios River with these two, and uh, that's... One one adventure after the other. A lot of it was humorous to us. We did enjoy the trip, but of course, uh, um, we got so far away. It occurred to us: we're just going downstream. We found ourselves in another country, wow. Bolivia. There's no, there's no customs there. There's nothing. It's just junk. No
0: borders. No.
1: And <laughs> I said, you know, we. We're pretty far away from if you would happen to cut yourself with a knife or uh, have appendicitis, we're dead. We're two or three weeks from, we're a week at least getting home if this little motor works. And when we do, we don't know when we can fly out. So,
0: wow, (laughs) so
1: we turned around. (laughs)
0: That's a that's a that's a major uh, adventure and uh mystery why you would take a trip like that to some people you uh you in your book the way you've described this is not a really a travelogue it's almost like a uh a, a, a fictional work because you have conversational uh things that happen between the characters or the individuals in the book and from my understanding yeah. the, the the names of the folks are uh are legit are not legitimate they're they're actually the real characters
1: Yes, they are, and, and um yes. I remember. I only put down the conversations I remember. But at night in the tent, I could I could make notes without any lights. You know, I, I constantly made notes, and then when I came home, I wrote it up right away, and I knew. It, you know, it's in fact most of the details of that trip are still um, in my mind. I can remember almost everything. We do. I did. I only put down conversations that I remember and have double checked with my partner who went with me, Bill Lutz.
0: It's phenomenal. He was,
1: yeah. And so um it's uh, everyone that's who has read it um uh, thinks it's interesting. They think we're nuts. They they say Wow, that's a good story. But you guys are crazy. <laughs> I guess we were. <laughs> now, you, you
0: may have been a little bit younger than what you are now. You're retired, or at least uh, yeah, call yourself retired at this right. point. Now, the the number of miles that you covered—did you have any way of uh, tracking that, or do you know approximately how many miles you sailed downriver or upriver?
1: Well, I do. Has? I know that the um, from Puerto Maldonado to the border at the Heath River is the border of uh, Bolivia. I believe. That that's about eighty to a hundred miles. However, hmm. the river that you go down is winds around like a snake, hmm. and it almost doubles back on itself. It makes the in fact has over the years and formed some uh, a very big uh, oxbow lakes with lots of great fish in it. But um, the uh, I I can't really tell other than we moved at about the rate that you walk. Or a little faster, and um, we were in a canoe. A, a, it was a hardwood boat, mm-hmm. about twenty feet long, twenty-five feet, and it had a little motor on it. It was a Briggs and Stratton, sixteen horsepower motor, and there—that's all they use uh, in the jungle down there. In different areas, they—it's—and they call these boats because of their sound. They call them pecky peckies. Pecky. <laughs> <laughs> And and all the time we were going downstream, I was thinking, we have to go upstream
2: mm. with the same motor mm-hmm. against
1: the flow. And I just wondered. And I was pleasantly surprised to find when we finally made him turn around, uh, we had to go back to the same place. That um, I was surprised that he could rev the motor up a little more. Wow. But that presented a problem near the end too. We lost it; it went out, and I—oops—that was panic time. Oh, <laughs> that really is. We're in a river. Well,
0: how far from the I finish still, line were you? I
1: still get sweaty palms after that. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about it,
0: and and how far from the finish line were you when that happened?
1: Um, oh, a matter of hours—four hours, four hours Ouch. something like that. Mm. But. You know, if in the stream, if, if a heavily loaded boat like that turns sideways, it's going to flip. You know, and it's, uh, mm. I could just see there's no one there. There are no people. We didn't see people for a week at a time. We finally found an Indian that was, had killed a taper, um, one of those unique animals they have that looks like a half of a horse and half eater. Yes, and they were selling pieces of it. They they killed it and were standing in the woods selling pieces. Oh wow. Wow. <laughs> no, I wow. we I couldn't help I couldn't help laughing at a lot of the things, especially my partner trying to fish with this little light tackle he had. When those people down there, the only fish they fish for are piranhas, and they eat them, and we ate them, but um, they. <laughs> You don't fish for piranhas with a fly line. <laughs> you put a, You get a wire and a big piece of meat on a hook, and they oh, come yanking goodness. at you. <laughs> and oh, it was the, funny. I, uh, there were so many funny things that happened. We had to laugh, even though we got more worried and worried that we were getting a little too far. We were too too exposed really i yeah. wouldn't do it again uh,
0: did you sleep on in the boat on the uh, on the river itself or did you you folks uh, camp overnight
1: we camped on the shore oh boy um, and in a tent <laughs> a tent that had bottom and well I had to keep things from crawling ants they got a lot of ants down there oh, and wow. termites hmm. and, <laughs> it's a it's an interesting place i there was a um one of the things that was most interesting to me was that I think there was a bird that was following us and it's called, I found out later a Watson and it's not related to any other bird that any of the, uh, what is it? It, I forget what it is when you study the species, but they cannot, they cannot relate it to any other bird. It has a, um, Fermentation, it eats only leaves and it smells just like a cow. It has a, really? has a from, uh that stomach, you yep. know, and it really? um regurgitates and eat it smells they call it a stink bird down there. Ouch. And I swear it was it's ugly as can be. And it's big, it's about the size of a pheasant.
2: Ooh, I swear
1: every time amazing. we stopped, there it was. Two more, three. And they eat a tree and they keep out of sight and they keep watching you and they have the worst coloring you've ever seen i are them fascinating and of course there's uh they have, that jungle has the – we didn't see it but they have anacondas and in fact the trip was remarkable uh, just because of the things we didn't see
0: <laughs> oh absolutely and the fact that you <laughs> fact you survived, you survived it, it
1: i would think, think. Like, yeah
0: <laughs> the uh what do you think the reader is going to find uh the most interesting about your trip beside the the narrative that you've provided is there uh maybe one particular event that uh, is going to stand out to them
1: um i think our effort to get home and get a flight that to us was um the first time we really felt a sense of entrapment we were it was like being in the corner. There was no one to talk to. And every day, we'd pack up our things, go to this airport in a pickup truck in the back of it. The mm-hmm. only pickup truck in the whole town. And it would say, Consolado, our flight. The only flight that comes into that little jungle. And every day, Consolado, Consolado. And then we had to figure out what to do that day and wait around and go out the next day. And wow. it was like, uh there was no one spoke English we couldn't get into the office where the 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 airline people were um they closed that as soon as they knew it was canceled no one spoke English no electricity and we kept trying to get out on a telephone and he just looked at it said no no we didn't every day we couldn't get out we thought if we got a hold of our overseas a travel agent or some they could call the embassy and we find out how to get out of there but that was a um, that was a, a spooky time I have never felt so helpless as far as coming up with some idea I've lost I've been lost overseas and and uh, I've traveled a lot but there's always an alternative you can go to the yes. embassy you can call this person or that per we couldn't do any of that there was nothing Wow. we just it's like being in a corner what do i do <laughs> and
0: and how but, long uh, how long was the trip in, in its entirety
1: um i you know it's not clear but i think because we changed our flights and everything it was about three weeks three weeks wow
0: Well, it's a fascinating, fascinating story,
1: a (laughs) A
0: fascinating story. And uh, for those who want adventure or are considering going to the Amazon rainforest, this certainly would be a book to read. And if you just want a high adventure that has conversation in it and reads like a novel, then you need to get a copy of the book, A River Too Far, author Lee Flandreau. Sir, um, where can my listeners get a copy of your book?
1: Well, it's on Amazon and through Ex Libris. Excellent. They have a website. You've Ex, ri- Ex Libris.
0: Yes, you've written another book. Are you planning to uh, do a follow-up to this one in the near future?
1: Not a follow-up to this one. Uh, I'm working on a book now uh, about my great-grandfather and his adventures in being shot in the Civil War. Oh, my. <laughs> I've always been a Civil War buff. That, that should and, uh, be fascinating. I'll probably name it after the book I have right here on my desk, which he was, which was pulled out of him, and luckily for for me, it was. Um, all, the, all his companions died in Andersonville Prison, and he was sent back home. He are traded to the Yankees, and um, then lived to seventy five and had a bunch of. Children, my grandmother. <laughs> Wonderful, but I, I thought that was a fascinating story, and, and uh, the family wants me to write it up, even if it doesn't sell.
0: All right, authors, uh, let's—I mean, authors and uh, listeners—the uh, correct spelling of flandro is F-L-A-N-D-R-E-A-U, and the first name is Lee, L-E-E, author uh, of A River Too Far and uh, other adventures uh, to come in the near future. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story.
1: Well, thank you very much. I
0: appreciate it. My pleasure for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages.
3: Have you heard?
0: back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Wonderfully Blessed, Highly Favored, Deeply Loved by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And joining me from Arizona is the author and the gentleman who is highly favored and blessed, Joe Lockhart. Welcome, sir, to the program. Welcome. Thank you. This is a a book that obviously is your personal passion. Now, uh, in reading a little bit of your history, you were born in Mississippi, if I remember correctly, and have moved somehow to Arizona. And I'm not going to be uh, sharing too much that's embarrassing, but it says that you're 83 years old. Is that correct? 84. 84. Well, this is... uh, October 1st. uh, October 1st. All right, sir. Now, this is the uh, first book you've written, is that correct?
4: Yes, it is.
0: And uh, you uh, have not penned a a difficult book to read. It's about 52 pages. And yet uh, the focus on this is something that's very important to you. Share with my listeners, what does the title of your book have to do with your personal life and why did you want to share it?
4: Well, it has to do with, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that's the Trinity in the Bible. And for the first part of my life, uh was very negative. I was into selfishness and unforgiving and just a lot of meanness and stubbornness, I guess, is, wor- is the best way to describe it is I didn't have no respect or thought uh, for God or who didn't. It just seemed like I didn't need no God. I was my own God. That's the way I felt for a long time. And I was wild and running around drinking. Sometimes I'd be drinking and go places and do things. And I didn't even remember where I went. And and, and sometimes I'd at home or be at somebody else's house the next day or something. And that's a scary thing to 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 think that you're having fun. And so I wound up carrying a gun. Most of the time, I was just like that commercial. I never left home without it. And wow. that was the thing that the worst thing I could have done was to carry a gun because when you got a gun, a gun don't it doesn't discriminate who it'll shoot.
0: That's and true. So
4: my brother and I went, the thing with my parents, Usually when they would leave home, they leave the oldest one in charge. So he and they had the authority to do whatever they wanted to do to discipline us. And so he he whipped me. I was about nine years old, wow. and he whipped me, and, and I never forgave him for that. And I thought I had forgotten it all, but but he left. When he left Mississippi and went to Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, in 1948. And like in 1966, I went to Rockford, Illinois, and I made contact with him. From Rockford is about a hundred miles from Chicago. Right. And so we reconnected after a long period of time. But I thought that I had forgiven him. Well, I had pretty much forgotten the, the early years of our life. But then we start drinking, and all that stuff would come back mm. t- to the m- surface right and we got arguments and fights and several fights and argument for it was actually the, the the killing it was a Saturday March 5th 1966 we were out drinking and and that's when it happened uh my niece my sister Edith's daughter said he would mess with her and she told me to make him leave her alone and I I walked up to him and I said, now I don't, a lot of this I don't remember. A lot of it was totally because I was, I was pretty well loaded, but they said I walked up to him and 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 shot three times. and hit him right about the right side of his navel. Wow. It, and he fell backwards, and when he hit the floor he was dead instantly Ouch. and and i uh, I called the police myself, and mm. I called and told them what I had done and they came and I went to jail that it was a Saturday night, and I went to jail, and I still didn't understand what didn't remember what had actually happened. So Sunday, Sunday during the day, I woke up and I asked him, "Could I get out?" And they said, "No, you can't get out." I said, "Why?" And they said, "Well, you killed your brother last night." Wow. And I said, "Wow." And I and I started asking questions about it, but it really just threw me, and I didn't have no way of understanding or knowing what I had done. Then I took some time Backtracking and searching my heart, and found out that I really never forgave him for for the time he whipped me when I was nine years old. Incredible. And that was a tragic. They call it the, the terrible day of my life. I felt like that was the worst day of my life when I found out I had done that. And Joe- yet, I had been. I planned to do it, but. When I wasn't drinking, it didn't seem to bother me as much, but when I started drinking, I just told him I was going to get even, and get, and I finally, I guess I got more than even because he whipped me and I killed him.
0: That's incredible. Now, Joe, you come from a fairly large family as well. Do, do I understand you had, uh, what, 10, 12, 13 brothers and sisters? Is that uh, accurate? Fifteen. fifteen.
4: Fifteen children. Mom and daddy had fifteen children. Wow. Ten girls and five boys.
0: Now, after this, what? after this, after this incident that that uh, took your brother's life, what was the result of that? You were incarcerated. I'm I'm guessing for a number of years. Is that also true?
4: Four years and nine months in Stateville Penitentiary in Joliet, Illinois.
0: Wow if i might ask that seems like a light sentence was that uh considered to be a uh justified homicide or how did they approach that
4: it, it was a murder according to the charge i was, it was i was i murdered my brother wow and that was and they gave me four years and nine months actually 15 to 21 was the year where but I actually did four years and nine months ah, total, Gotcha. consecutive, and man, that and that that was the worst. That turned out to be. I thought that when I killed him was were bad, but it, it turned out when I realized I was in state'sville penitentiary for four years and nine months, that turned out to be the worst day of my life. Still, all over again. Wow! Because I was just I was so broken and so sad and so sorry but i still hadn't gotten to the bottom of the, the anger and fear and hatred i had for him because i wanted to commit suicide i just didn't feel like i could do no four years and nine months in, the, in locked up in a place like that.
0: But your book your book but, your book indicates that there's something positive that happened to your life following that that very desperate situation you mentioned in your book uh the road to healing. What does that re- what did that what did that uh entail and uh, what required that road uh, to, to to how did you get on that road to healing?
4: Well, I, I was in. Uh, we, we, I didn't finish high school before I went to the penitentiary, and I was in. The, just had a GED program in prison, and I joined that the program for to to get my GED, and in the process of getting my GED, I met this guy that. that Reverend Sorensen was a chaplain, Protestant chaplain in Joliet, and he worked for him, and he said they need somebody else if I was interested. Mm. I told him, sure, and that's how I got started working with Reverend Sorensen. And then they were having group therapy and i didn't i hadn't never heard of no therapy i haven't even hadn't even heard the word therapy and they didn't even know what it meant right and they asked me if, if i thought i was an alcoholic they had a 20 question 20 20 question answer so if you answer three of these true you are an alcoholic wow but until then i read that and i i still was Deni- in denial. After, I, after, after, I, I missed a half of them. I had, had twelve or fourteen of them, and I was guilty of. But I still didn't accept the that I was an alcoholic at that point. And then by the group therapist, Reverend Swanson led them in his office. Usually, from eight to ten to twelve people in the group. And, and we'd go around in a circle, and everybody would tell a little bit about their life story. It started out by telling your life story, and as you share your life story, the other inmates would question you about different things. And each time, I they'd get to me. I said, it, it, "It wasn't my. I said, if he hadn't have done what he did, I wouldn't do it. I don't feel like I'm." it was my fault I had I don't feel bad about it at all. Wow. And and I was in denial for I guess the first six months of the therapy. But from the therapy and talking to Reverend Sorensen and the group the group therapy and reading the Bible were the main two things that I did there that I hadn't done before. And and, and understanding them and and the questions that the enemy had asked me, I was able to say, "Yes, I'm an alcoholic." I was able uh, to, uh, to uh, and I a lot of of 'cause I didn't remember a lot of the things. I was drunk sometimes, but I didn't remember that much about what I what I did or where I was. And so, I was able to start filling in them void spots mm. because I, that, that that was a true way of proven to me that I was surely an alcoholic full-blown yeah and I was able to accept that and by accepting it then I started asking God for forgiveness and my and and that's how I started and I just continued until my then I started going to AA meetings and then my daddy came to visit me that was certainly a surprise that was the greatest day that, that I had me in my life, because he was the one that I worried about the most. I was, I, every time I think about it, when I got out, I said, boy, I, I don't know what, what, how I'm going to face him. Right. I just felt so shame and guilt.
2: And but the, and this... I was
4: a baby boy, and any was the oldest boy.
0: Wow. And this this is and, uh, this this all began this this journey to recovery in the '60s. Is that uh, is that an accurate time frame, or was it later than that?
4: Absolutely, 1966.
0: Incredible, was
4: it, 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 it was, it, it, that was the time that that began, and I was in Joliet, and that 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 place is what you call one of the most vicious and. Gang, gang banging. A lot of gangs. Yeah, we in the prison. Half of it, a lot of it was controlled by the gangs inside. And man, I I was kind of walking on thin ice a long, a lot of time. But after I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was. It was just like a weight lifted off of my shoulder. I could feel the relief just when I asked him to forgive me. And I felt the forgiveness because I was genuinely sorry for what I had done. And when I was genuinely sorry and asked him to forgive me, I would never do nothing like that again. And he forgave me, and I started to feel so free. And then I had the opportunity to have my daddy come visit me on top of that, and he came to visit me from Mississippi as a surprise. Wow! But, but he came, and, and and as soon as I saw him, I started break down. He's, oh, he's hold it, hold it, hold it. He said, "I am not here to talk about your brother any. He's dead, and he ain't coming back." Wow. I'm here to see you, cause you—he's dead and gone. You alive, and he said, "I." He said, "I." I he said, "I forgave you." The, well, right away, he said, "I forgave you for because I love you." He said, "You're my son," mm. and and that was another great day of my life. That just knowing to hear him say that, I, I was walking like on cloud nine because it was such a joy. I felt within my heart and, 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 and and, I was able to give him a hug for two or three minutes. I just, we got to, just stood up and reached across. It had a balanced bar between us, but we were able to stand up and, and hug. And boy, that was the best hug Uh I've ever had from him or anybody else really, because it was, it was a, it was a forgiving hug. Yes. And it taught me how to forgive. Well, I
0: will say this yeah. Joe, I will say this Joe about your story. Uh you know, there are many people in prison uh individuals that get religion. Uh you obviously got vaccinated with something a little stronger than that because it's still it's still working and uh, you're still motivated to share your story not only of the sad and bad times but also of the blessed highly favored, deeply loved by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, journey that you're on. So you, your book really turns from that sad and bad time to one that's exciting and one that's motivational, and you still have that motivation. Why is that?
4: Well, because the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, John three sixteen. That whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So I found out just by believing in Jesus Christ and the, the and the Father and the Son dying on the cross for me. Jesus died for me to to save me from my sin, something I couldn't do for myself. So I need I was in desperate need of a savior, and it, and because I found out that that was the best place for me, cause. Had I not gone there, I don't believe I would be the man I am today because I would have still been making excuses and, and in denial, I believe. But in the enjoy in, in it and becoming saved, I believe I, that became the best thing that ever could ever happen to me. And so because of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and not only God gave his Son... And his son gave his life. He laid down his life for me. Right. He, he died on the cross. He, he would have died for me if it just been me, because God love the love of God is unconditional. There's nothing on earth as strong and powerful as the love of God, because ain't no nothing else you can have in your life that compares to love, especially unconditional love. He loved me unconditionally. And, and because he loved me, the Holy Spirit has taught me how to love other people the same way. And I, I don't get no joy out of doing no harm or wrong to nobody. My harm, my happiness comes from being obedient to the will of God. He said, whosoever will, let him come. And I, and I, and I, I, I gave my promise. He saved me, and I, and I promised him I will serve him till I, as long as I leave, I'm alive, I'm going to serve him because there's no greater love in the, in the world than the love of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well,
0: Joe, that's a marvelous story, and uh, for those who are churchy related, they also call that a testimony. You definitely have one, uh, one that uh, should inspire others. It's not again a long read. But one that is inspiring because of the outcome. You were reconciled with your brother's children and also with your brothers and sisters. Uh, there's more to this story than what you've shared, uh, just in this brief uh, conversation. Joe, where can my listeners get a copy of your book?
4: Oh, I got a website, Joe Lockhart book, and, 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 uh, mo- and, and Facebook and Zebra Ze- Zebras and I believe Amazon
0: yes Amazon Barnes & Noble they can also request it from their local books or bookstore probably uh, rather than the the title which is lengthy you might just look under Joe Lockhart L O C K H A R T that's the author uh, 84 years old at the moment, and uh, sharing his faith and sharing his future uh, with with uh, hopefully a worldwide audience. Thank you, Joe, for sharing that with us today, and uh, we look forward to visiting with you in the future. Perhaps there'll be a follow-up book.
4: Thank you, and have a blessed day now. My
0: pleasure, sir. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once
5: every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. <laughs> Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas. Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on
2: AstronetRadio.com.
0: Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Be the Pine, Be the Ball. And joining me from California is the author of this quizzical work, Paul J. Zing. Paul, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you, Jerry. Very pleased to be here with you.
0: You have a passion for a certain sport that is outlined in this book, and this is the third, I think, in a, in not a series, but a third book that you have produced uh, related to this uh, particular sport. Share with my listeners who that is or what that is, and uh, there's a couple of significant dates in there. 1744 stuck out in my mind. Share with my listeners why that's important and how this book got to be written.
5: Well, the book definitely stems from my uh, passion uh, for golf, but also the attempt to look for meaning in everything that I do. And I have found within golf a marvelous vehicle in order to connect uh, the physical challenges of a game with the intellectual demands uh, of, that, of that game. Uh, It's been said that the toughest golf course that folks will ever play is only about six inches long. That's the distance from one ear to the other ear with the brain in between. And I think that that's quite a telling description of what the game uh, requires. Back in the early 18th uh, century, a group of gentlemen in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, formed uh, a club that eventually became known as the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, and what they did back then was to write down a set of rules uh, for the uh, for the game, and those rules, for the most part, have remained in place for almost. 18, 19, 20, 21st century, Incredible. 350 years or so. Incredible. And um, it's really remarkable. You, what
0: you're, you're, what? Your, your title, uh, Be the Pine, Be the Ball, I'm guessing yes. re- relates back also to the 1700s. Is that correct? Or, or am I it misreading it? It certainly that? does.
5: Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, uh, Be the Pine was the advice given by a Japanese poet by the name of Basho, who many Japanese and haiku poets regard as the father of haiku poetry. And his advice to those who wanted to follow the haiku way, so to speak, is basically summed up in a line in which he said, in order to write about the pine, you must become one with the pine. Mm -hmm. You must be the pine. So it required an intimate understanding of whatever the natural uh, subject was in order to write about it and understand its properties. Be the ball is a phrase that comes from an American um, uh, comedy film from the dates to the 1980s called Caddyshack. Uh And in that particular film, at one point, one of the major characters is giving advice to a young caddy who aspires to be a good golfer and the better player advises him that in order to really be proficient in the game, you had to learn how to block out all distraction and concentrate on the immediate task at hand, i.e. the ball. Mm. So, be, be the ball. Be the ball. And, uh, and what I found in my own uh, study and beginning to write haiku is remarkable agreement between haiku poetry and golf through the intense focus that both require on an object of co- uh, concentration uh, the ability to block out distractions as one focuses on whether it's the study of a pine or the hitting of a golf ball. But it also uh, opens up that the world of interpretation and that how Basho might have s- contemplated a pine or his pupils or me or some other uh, haiku poet, the range of interpretation underscores, I think, the appeal of that poetic form. The same thing with golf. It uh, There's no two golfers who ever have the same swing, the mm. same ability, but they are connected in that they need to bring focus, concentration, and in particular, simplicity to their approach to the game it's exactly what haiku also preaches yeah. simplicity focus etc
0: your book mentions a lot of well-known golf courses including saint andrews and gives a descriptive of that uh, that uh, well-known or well thought of uh, golfing venue D- have you personally been a uh, a player on the courses that you mention in your book
5: yes um, in fact all of the courses that have really received um, significant attention, like in Scotland, St Andrews, Dornick, Muirfield, uh, Prestwick, places like that in the United States, Marion, Pebble Beach uh, uh, Cypress Point, uh, so a lot of this does come from firsthand experience uh, on those courses. And also an attempt to understand the larger world in which those courses sit. And St. Andrews is a perfect example because the entire town of St. Andrews is devoted to golf. You go in the bars and that's what they're talking about. You walk down the streets and the shops are all about golf. It is very golf savvy and very respectful of the history and the culture of the game. So... I've sort of gravitated to those courses that have that historical um, sense and historical sense of the the power of the game, the appeal of the game. And these are courses also that have changed very little uh, over the years. Yes, there's been tinkering and so forth, but... They're masterpieces, and what the best architects have done, they have respected and they've witnessed the the beauty and the genius in the design of these older courses, and they haven't really messed with them very, very, very much. And again, St. Andrews is a course that plays differently every day, depending upon uh, the weather, depending upon The wind, um, it's not just what one's game is like on a particular day. It's all of these other factors that influence how the game needs to be played. As the day presents itself,
0: and and the course itself is not surrounded by uh, hedges and fences and uh, the <laughs> typical thing of of, uh, of courses in the United States that are sort of exclusive, it's a rather rough and rugged uh, atmosphere, is it not?
5: It is. It's it's actually uh, there's a great story of uh, Sam Snead, uh, the great American golfer and winner of many majors. Uh, heading to St. Andrews in 1947 to play in the open. And he arrived on a train and as he's looking out the train window, he sees this field,
2: <laughs>
5: an open rumpled field that for all extents and purposes was abandoned and barren. Well, it turned out that was the old course at St. Andrews. Incredible. And, um, He discovered, as so many people do, that it does take a while to, I think, appreciate uh, the genius, uh, to laugh at the idiosyncrasies, uh, to really experience what golf was like, I mean, really 400, 500 years ago, and how St. Andrews has preserved uh, the basic spirit of the game, as well as the challenges of the game. But yes, there's no... Hedges spelling out old course. There's no grand archway to the first tee. It just sits there at a corner where the city center uh, joins the golf course. So on any particular day, the first tee, the 18th green, surrounded as they both are by a low fence, perched on this fence are people... Eating their lunches or watching the show before them,
2: mm.
5: and it's all—it's quite beautiful. It's—it's it's unique, and it underscores the accessibility of these great grounds, whether one is a player or a spectator, or simply someone who enjoys uh, a beautiful uh, place to watch and, and hopefully play
0: golf. 278 pages, and I will say this uh, on behalf of the uh, listener. Your book is not a how-to play golf. It is a reflection on the atmosphere, the learning lessons around or surrounding the game of golf. The uh, subtitle of your book, Haiku, uh, Reflections on the World of Golf. Explain to my listeners what haiku means in this setting.
5: Well, haiku is a very structured form of poetry that emerged from a long tradition of uh, poetic expression uh, in Japan that goes back over a thousand years. But in the late 17th, uh, early 18th centuries, it began to be um, formulated around a certain set of rules. Basically, three lines of 17 syllables, the first line, five syllables, the second line, seven, the third line, five.
2: Mm.
5: A traditional haiku also involves a nature reference, a reference to a season, or a reference to a particular natural phenomenon, a pond or a frog or a, um, a, a, a thunderstorm. Uh, and the third line also is sort of a kicker. Uh, the first two lines may in fact be a thought on their own, but the third line then gives the reader just another thought about how to appreciate uh, what the, uh, the the poem tries to uh, accomplish uh, in fact uh, if might I read one? Oh, to abs- you?
0: absolutely! I, I'm seeing that most of your chapters do they not begin with a haiku, or is that uh, they something? all? There, yes,
5: there are 72 haiku poems, and there are 72 short essays uh, which accompany them, and um, they're all designed to be self-contained, so one can pick up the book really at any point and hopefully uh, enjoy it at that uh, at that point.
0: Beautiful. Well, share Um, share with my listeners uh, a a haiku.
5: Here's one. Um, The the title of the the piece is Squib, S-Q-U-I-B. A squib is a quick arriving and fast departing but very intense rainstorm that is very common uh, to Scotland and to Ireland. They kind of arrive out of nowhere and then they move on. So the poem goes this way, and again, it's the 5-7-5 arrangement. The first two lines are a a, a thought on their own, and then the third gives it a little kicker. The squib brings fierce rain. Umbrellas raise against it. A feeble defense. and. So and the idea is hopefully people in their mind will imagine different notions of what fierce rain is. They will have different notions of rushing to raise an umbrella in order to ward off the deluge. And then the the reality of watching the umbrella Blow away, or turn inside out, or otherwise fail in order to ward off the, the storm. So that's that's one that particularly reflects the formula, and in fact the uh, the spirit of uh, the the poem, or of the form. I think particularly well.
0: It's it's an incredible form because of the structure. I mean, uh, you 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 know in advance what the structure will be, but then you have to conform the thought and imagery to match it. That that's uh, that's a challenge in itself, is it not?
5: It it does. Um, and you know, as I wrote, as I went through the book and imagined what it would be, uh, sometimes. A, I would be. I would focus on a single line, not necessarily, uh, or even a single word, not necessarily a, uh, a, a full poem. In other cases, I might have uh, a certain alliteration or a certain rhyme in mind, and it would it would take shape. Uh, let, let me read one other one too just yes, this yes this is a poem in which i had the last line in mind before i wrote the poem and the last line is each in its own way i mean that's a very simple expression people use it often for many different um, many different occasions yes but here's the poem And the poem focuses, it's entitled Greatness, and it focuses on the rankings of courses and the ratings of courses and, you know, why is Pine Valley number one and why is Cypress Point number two and why is some other course number 100? Um, And and this is a poem that kind of brings some perspective to rankings. Again, Greatness are cherry blossoms more splendid than rose petals, each in its own way.
0: It. Congratulations. Congratulations. Again, this book, uh, listeners, is not a, a how-to play golf, or I don't know how to describe it other than it's a poetic interpretation of the atmosphere of golf with haiku, and uh, beautifully written. Uh, certainly don't have to be a sports fan or a sports fan, uh, enthusiast or a golf enthusiast to enjoy this book the title of which is be the pine be the ball haiku reflections on the world of golf and my author has been paul j z-i-n-g-g zing and uh, he's written other books so i know you'll want to do a search and uh, find about find out about the other uh, things that he has written uh regarding uh, paul where do my listeners get a copy of your book
5: well, it's certainly available. It's available on Amazon. It's at uh, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, one can go directly to the Ex Libris uh, website. Those are probably the easiest online sources. Uh, I know it's it, it's in many local bookstores and big chains, but uh, I, I think initially to locate it would be. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Ex
0: Libris. Fabulous. And I'm sure uh, you are either developing or have developed a website. Is that also uh, available to the listener?
5: Yes. uh, I can be reached at um, www.authorpaulzing.com.
0: And that's Z-I-N-G-G. Paul, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is fascinating, and I know that, uh, as we've discussed prior to the recording, you have another book, Reflecting on Golf, uh, that's uh, in the works. So thank you again for sharing this story with us and look forward to visiting with you in the near future.
5: Thank you very much, Jay. I've enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure,
0: sir. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker.